Thanks, Rachel. I was just sitting there, very relaxed, thinking, what's going to happen now? And then I totally forgot I was preaching for a minute. <clears throat> Hi, everyone. It's lovely to be with you, as always. And um, yeah, as Rachel said, we're doing, we're in a bit of a sermon series on the subject of shame. Now, if you weren't here um, a couple of weeks ago when we started, you might think, why do they want to talk about shame? That's a bit of a negative thing to talk about, isn't it? It kind of like the bad news. Um, but actually, what we, what we feel like at the moment is we're in wholeness season. So you probably picked up that we've, we're going to be starting our wholeness course on Tuesday. And our wholeness course is this opportunity to kind of look inward in order to find some freedom, find some refreshing, some renewal, maybe look at some of the things that hold us back in life and really try and understand ourselves. Now, I don't know if you understand yourself. Would you say you're somebody who's got good bit of insight into how you are, why you are the way you are, how you got to be this sort of person, the things that have gone in to make you up. And one of the things that's really obvious when you, this gorgeous little baby, you know, she's just an innocent, lovely looking little baby. But the hard news is, it's not too long before original sin sets in. Sorry about that, you guys, but you're going to be seeing it before too long. And I can remember when our, our kids were toddlers, this sort of dawning realization. I mean, they come loaded up with some stuff. And where does it come from? This kind of, you know, rebellious streak or this willfulness. And, you know, we're complex creatures, aren't we? And I was thinking in my sort of preparation for today, thinking, when was the first time I felt sort of shame or that kind of real, what's my conscious memory of it? And, and I realized that a very early memory for me was my first day at school. And um, I was five. And um, I actually went to Henley's Infant School for six weeks. And then I moved to another school, not because I'd done anything really bad. It was just circumstances. But anyway, on this particular day, I went to school and I was just, you know, I think quite a sweet, innocent little five-year-old girl. But I broke a pencil on my first day. And um, I went to the teacher to tell her that I'd broken a pencil. And she was cross. And she actually sent me to the head teacher. She did. Now, don't, don't worry about taking revenge on my behalf or anyone. It's 1969. It's a long time ago. Stop trying to work out how old I am. Um, and so I went to the head teacher, and I was so terrified. I really was. I, I mean, I was only five, and that door, that door with head teacher written on it terrified me. And I, so I went to the door, and I was going to knock, and I didn't knock. I, I actually just went, and I just sat on the chair outside her room and looking at this door and trying to pluck up courage to knock on the door. And then I just thought, I can't. So I went back to the teacher and I said, um, she sent me back. And the teacher said, what did she say? And she, I said, she said just to sellotape it back together. <laughs> um, which probably the teacher sussed out something I missed there. Obviously, it doesn't work. Um, because I was scared and embarrassed and just vulnerable because that is it, isn't it? It's like there are things in our lives that expose us. Obviously, this is a very mild thing, but maybe you're somebody who's aware on the other end of the spectrum. There are things
things I've done in my life that exposed me to this sense of shame and brokenness and wrongness and as if not only that I've done something wrong, but there's something wrong with me. And we can carry that sense of shame as we've talked about and unpacked a little bit. But what we're going to unpack today is not so much just that innate sense of human shame that all human beings have a bit of a tendency to feel. It's more you know, what do we do in response to it? And how, in a way, our responses to that vulnerability, those moments, actually get us into more trouble than maybe the original thing. Now, Nigel said, I need to just say, I never got found out. So that was my confession. And I've never been punished for my lie. <laughs> um, because there is this fear, isn't there, that, that we carry when we do things wrong, that you know, our comeuppance is coming, and it's very much part of our human, human situation. But also, we might be aware that sometimes we do things in reaction to shame that also get us into deep water. So I was thinking about this um, moment in the Gospel of John where Jesus is, um, is, goes to a well on a hot day. And I don't know if you ever sort of wonder, what was it like for people meeting Jesus what was it like? We're sort of asking that question. What, um, what, are, what are the things that you might be carrying that are a bit hard to be honest and open about? That question, it's a good question for self-reflection. Why, what, have you ever done anything or are there areas of your life you actually find really hard to be honest with God about? And when we come to God and we start to meet him and get to know him, you know, it pokes around in that sort of area, doesn't it? And, and we're not so sure of, our, of God's response to us. So, but what was it like for people meeting Jesus? And on this particular day, it's a very familiar story. Lots of us know the story. It's hot, he's thirsty, he goes to a well looking for a drink. It's midday and there's nothing there for him to drink with. And before too long, a woman arrives at the well and um, she's a woman who, she's a local person. She's there to draw water from the well with her buckets. And Jesus says to her, could you give me a drink? Simple question. And she is absolutely shocked that he's asked her that. And you, if you know the story, you'll know why. It's because she says to him, you are a Jew, but I am from Samaria. This is a neighboring region. And the history of this is that the Jewish people and the Samaritan people were absolutely hated one another. There's centuries of hatred and prejudice and violence and violent acts and all sorts of things, a history that has unfolded there. And so in between these, Jesus and this woman is sort of crackling this tension of, of hostility and shame, actually. They sh mutually shamed one another. And she's so shocked that Jesus' question passes over the gap between them. And he just simply asks her for something, a drink. And, she, and then the story starts to unfold. And if you know the story, you'll know that they start to talk about worship and, and about their lives. And Jesus says to her, eventually he says to her, you know, if you... If you knew who was asking you for a drink, you'd ask me for a drink. What? Ask you for a drink. And Jesus said, because the water that I can give will never run out. And she's, you know, maybe she laughs a bit. 
And then she says, well, give me the water then, because I don't want to come here. And we don't really know the story of this woman, but theologians and people and preachers have, have kind of conjectured over the years there's something wrong with this woman's life. She, she, Jesus goes on to remark on the fact that she's had five husbands. He seems to know it prophetically about her. And she says, you seem to know everything about me, but there's something going on. She's on her own in midday. You wouldn't normally draw water from a well in midday. And maybe people have wondered, is she a woman who's a serial adulterer? She's had five husbands. Maybe she's a prostitute. Maybe she's had a life of shame, but she's certainly been shamed down the centuries by the commentary about her. And Jesus meets her and there's no hint of shame. He's asking her for something. And then he offers her this interaction, this amazing, deep, theological, tender interaction between Jesus and this woman. The thing is, is that whatever her story is, she has got some, she's got something in her history because we all have. In our families, in our Maybe in the generations looking back, maybe you are aware that there are things that seem to roll down the generations in my family that make me a certain sort of person, make me vulnerable, make me a bit ashamed. Maybe you've got some shame about things that have been done to you. We don't know whether this woman was a willing participant of five marriages. It doesn't sound like much fun, to be honest, does it? But it's, you know, is she somebody who has had stuff done to her? And sometimes shame is put on us by our circumstances, our families, the generations. This writer, John Bradshaw, is he, he's a well-known writer who writes about recovering from alcoholism. He's got a lot of shame in his history, but he writes about finding freedom from shame. But he says this, families are as sick as their secrets. The secrets are what they're ashamed of. Family secrets can go back for generations. They can be about suicides, addictions public loss of faith, financial disaster, fill in the gaps. All the secrets get acted out, he says. This is the power of toxic shame. And that's what we're talking about, this idea that shame just keeps rolling on unless it's interrupted. And we're going to talk about the interruption of the cycles of shame today. So we're going back to Genesis 3, where we were last week. We're reading the same passage. We're just moving on slightly this time. So this is Genesis chapter 3. And just after the woman and the man have eaten this forbidden fruit and the whole consequences of eating it have begun to unfold it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then moving on down the passage to the end of this passage, 
It says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the next slide, the Lord God made them garments of skin for Adam and Eve and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. It is, um, as we were saying last week, it's a poignant moment in Scripture, and it's right at the very beginning of Scripture. It's like, is the news going to get better? Because we're starting in this place, and Jewish people listening to these stories were probably not that analytical about the creation story and who was Adam and Eve and how many days it took to make creation. What they would have been doing would be analysing, what does this tell us about our story? They would have recognised these stories are the story of us. This is what it is to be a human being, to be somebody who is meant to have this relationship with God, but it's broken and severed, and they've fallen into shame. They're hiding in the bushes, and what do they do? So I'm just going to offer three thoughts, really, three perspectives on what happens when we fall into a place of shame and then the consequences begin to roll out because it's important for us to understand what we do and how our own actions can sometimes, yeah, kind of make things worse. <laughs> so the first thing that happens is they start sewing fig leaves together. Now, I think this is the beginning of the fashion industry with all its shame and pain and compare and despair and brokenness and sweatshops and things like that. You know, actually, this is the beginning of covering up, making clothes. Now, what they do is they grab some leaves and they start to sew them together. What is this story trying to tell us? What is that about? I mean, leaves don't make good clothes. We all know that. The story is trying to say something. So what they do is they grab the stuff that's nearest to them. Now, here's a thought. When you're in pain, when you're vulnerable, when you're afraid, when something has happened to expose you and make you feel that raw sense of, I am not okay, what do you turn to? Because your first thing you turn to is often going to be a very flimsy covering. So what is it for you, the first thing, when someone criticizes you? Flare up with anger. I'm sure you're familiar with that feeling, say, of somebody saying something about you that seems a bit unjust, and your that sense of rising indignation. It's not okay for you to speak to me like this. It's not okay in the flare-up of anger. It's the first thing you grab to clothe yourself. Why? Anger experts say that when people are angry, if you want to actually become a less angry person, one of the things you can do is when you've had an angry episode, a big temper tantrum, a big bullying session or something where your mouth has got the better of you and you've harmed somebody with your words and you're recognizing I was angry and I lost it, one thing you can do is stop and try and unwind back to the feelings that you had just prior to the outburst. And they will say that often what you will recognize is there's a feeling underneath it that feels more like fear. 
or more like a sort of vulnerability. I'm exposed, you know, criticised. Ah, oh, I'm not okay. You know, somebody accusing you of doing something and you feel vulnerable. And so we reach for something and our first instinct, often a bad one, because we're humans and that's what humans do. That's what this story is telling us. So what are the things that you reach for? Maybe you run away. Maybe you're the withdrawal type who just shuts down, closes down, walks away, doesn't want to talk about things. Maybe you give people the cold shoulder. Maybe you shut them down with your, the way that you speak to them. But it's all about the silent treatment, the withdrawal. That's your chosen thing. Garment, the fig leaves. Maybe you want to control everything. Ever been accused of being controlling? Ever wondered if you're controlling? Controlling people tend to control. We all want to control, actually. <laughs> we tend to control when we don't want to be out of control. And so we reach for it, trying to control what people are saying about us, what they're doing around us. And so we have these things that we construct together. They're, they're the fig leaves. They're the first instincts. So if you want to think this week and reflect on this sort of thing, then, you know, maybe ask somebody, what do you think I do when I'm feeling vulnerable? What's my first instinct? It takes a little bit of digging. Second thing to say about hiding and in, in our shame is that there's a real cost to it. And this is really important. There is a cost to choosing something to cover you that is broken. And we pay the cost. You will pay the cost. And the people around you will pay the cost. Because what we end up hiding behind can end up defining us. If you hide behind anger, you'll be an angry person. And people will think of you as angry. And they will tiptoe around you. And maybe... Sometimes you'll be so vulnerable and weak that you'll actually be glad they were tiptoeing around you. But you might begin to realize that they're never truly honest. They're never completely relaxed around you. There's a cost to using anger to hide you. Maybe your first instinct, one of the things that we recognize is that when we choose something to hide behind that's not from God, not a God-given protection, it can get very dark. We can end up partnering with things that take us down into the darkness. And you might be somebody who's aware that actually it's become a bit dark in this. My reactions are a bit dark. I can't stop controlling. I can't stop the anger. Maybe it's a compulsion, an addiction that you feel like this drags me down into the dirt and the darkness and I cannot stop it. A power seems to have overtaken me as I have partnered with it, as I've chosen these things. And Actually, there are consequences spiritually for what we partner with. And sometimes in prayer, that's where we need to go and recognize, God, in my shame and brokenness, I've partnered with things that are called the, dark, the powers of darkness closer to me. And the third thing is to say that it can be a very lonely place. If you hide from God or hide from other people, and you rely on these instincts that we have all got, and we become very self-reliant on them, actually it's a lonely place. Using your ego to control people around you is a lonely thing to do. 
and actually we become inflated by our ego. Uh, it's almost like you can become a cartoon version of yourself. And you are somebody who has been made by God with these incredible traits and characteristics that are totally unique. There's no one else like you. No one. You're amazing. And you've got nuances and interesting aspects to your character and personality that no one else has got. But when we're consumed by these things that we hide behind, it's like they all disappear a little bit. And we just become an angry person, like a Simpsons character. You know, or we become somebody who's quiet, withdrawn. You know, in wholeness, we talk about the barking dog, the hedgehog, the tortoise, the appeasing cat, that, you know, these characteristics that are just kind of obscuring who you really are. And so God wants to call us out of hiding and he wants to interrupt that cycle of shame. And so he does. So he interrupts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he interrupts this couple in their attempt to hide. And what he does is he comes and he calls them out, as we were looking at last week. Jesus interrupts the woman in her life that is rolling on, her loneliness, her potential shame. He interrupts her with this prophetic word that says, I know you and I've got what you're really looking for. He interrupts the cycle of shame. And his, his interruption into her world is absolutely life-changing. It's empowering. Because that's something that God wants to do. Shame wants to disempower us. But God wants you to be a powerful person. Shame wants to make you weak and vulnerable and remind you of how rubbish you are. But God wants to remind you that you're made in his image. Beautiful and incredible, and interesting, and fascinating. And sometimes the prophetic, that is exactly the power of the prophetic. That's why we love the prophetic clinics here. And we want to encourage prophecy as much as we can, because sometimes a word coming from God's mind and heart towards you is the only thing that will break the bubble of shame. And there in the garden, there's another holy interruption and it's actually really painful because what happens is God can see the inadequacy of these flimsy, leafy clothes. And he kills an animal. And he takes the skin and he makes clothes for Adam and Eve. And maybe you've read the story a few times and you've thought, oh, yes, that's, you know, an animal sacrifice. It's the first time anything has ever died. Adam and Eve are intimately acquainted with the, re, with the results of what they have chosen. Choosing to disconnect from God, to put their trust in something else, and then hiding from him. Needing to be clothed, and then this animal dies. Theologians call it a foreshadowing. And you get them all the way through the scriptures, this sense of foreshadowing. Something's coming. This is just a hint of it. There's something else that'll be the fulfillment of it. This first animal dying, its skin covering them, covering their shame. What does it speak of? We know what it speaks of. In a few weeks' time, we're going towards Easter, and we're going to be journeying with Jesus on the cross as he walks towards the cross. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus walked towards the shame of the cross 
to endure its shame because it was a shameful place for anyone to be was the cross and he endured its shame for what? For the joy set before him, the joy of bringing you and me into freedom from shame. That's what motivated Jesus. And this animal dying is saying it's a foreshadowing one day. Something, someone will come who will die. And his righteousness, his goodness will cover you like the skin. And it will be an adequate covering, not an inadequate one, not a flimsy garment that's going to fall apart and curl up and dry within days. It's going to be, it's a garment made of skin, the skin of Jesus, really. And maybe you recognize that in your in your pathway around through life and through the things that you've had to sift through and maybe your history and the generational stuff that is carried in your family, maybe through your own behaviors that have drawn you into sin and shame, maybe you recognize there's a bit of a flavor of death about some of it. And here's Adam and Eve and they they realize death in this. Something has died. I'm just going to finish, actually, with this amazing verse from the letter of Peter. And in it, he talks about the lamb slain before the creation of the world. It's an amazing idea. It's repeated in Revelation. The lamb slain before the creation of the world. You know, the whole Bible story holds together. It makes sense. From Genesis to Revelation, there's this theme that goes through the whole Bible that says there's a lamb that is slain. Before even human beings were created, the provision was made for the lamb to die. Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world, as his cousin said about him. This verse here is from 1 Peter. For you know that it was not with perishable things like fig leaves, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So what is the right response to the Lamb of God who covers our shame? We were chatting at the beginning of the um, service, me and Nigel, about what do you do then with shame? Is shame something you repent of? Or is it the acts that follow shame that you repent of? Maybe there's a bit of a mystery about that. But God wants you to be someone who's living without shame. It says in the in Colossians, you're called to be holy without any blemishes and free from accusation. That's what he wants you to live like. And um, I don't know if you have been seeing on the news some stories in the media in America about a revival, they're calling it, in Asbury, this university, a Christian university where they were meeting, met three times a week just to worship God three times a week in the morning. And one morning, a small group of people were there just singing a few songs, praising Jesus. And a a young man got up onto the stage and he just shared some confession. Really simple. I've done these things wrong. I'm confessing. 
I'm receiving my forgiveness, just telling you, because I don't want to live in hiding. And something happened in the room, and everyone that was there reports that this holiness entered the room. Holiness. And this moment of heart-softening, tenderizing moment where people met with the Lamb of God who took away their sin and shame. And it's really amazing if you followed the stories. But I just want to encourage you that a good response to this is simply to come in confession and repentance. Nigel's going to come and lead us in communion, but it's a, the right response. It's just to stop all the hiding and the hype and the self-excusing things that we say and just say, God, I see it. I do this in response to my fear and my vulnerability and my shame. And I confess it and receive his free gift of cleansing and eternal life. And we're so grateful to Jesus for that. I'm going to pray now. I just invite you to close your eyes for a minute and just, just stay in that moment of coming to God. You know, if you're honest, what is hard for you to be honest about with God? God, we come to you. Jesus, the one who met the woman at the well and met her without prejudice, without anger, without aggression or hostility. You met her and you crossed the divide. Thank you for crossing the divide. Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain before the creation of the world for me, for my sinfulness and my shame. And I pray that you'd come and meet with us as we go into communion, just come be with us. Set us free. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.